Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. This week's show is What You Should Know About U.S.-China Trade Tensions and Why It Matters for Alaska, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. The speaker is Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. This program was recorded on November 16th at 49th State Brewing Company. We begin with Alaska World Affairs Council CEO, Lisa Falsco. And it's such a pleasure to see everyone here today. Uh, this program is part of our series that has started this year, and we have just been going crazy with programs. If you have not been to the World Affairs Council before, we encourage you to come back again. We're so glad to have you. With that, I'd like to bring to the stage Ms. Sheila Selkrag. She is a professor of uh, public policy at UAA, as well as a member of the board of directors of the Alaska World Affairs Council, Sheila. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Erin Ennis. Erin Ennis has been a senior vice president of the U.S. Chinese Business Council, which is the CSCBC, since 19, uh, uh, since, I'm sorry, since 2015, where she was previously served uh, as the president um, vice president in 2005. She directs the CSCB's government affairs and advocacy work and oversees the USCBC's business advisory services. Founded in 1973, CSCB provides extensive Chinese-focused information, advisory, and advocacy services um, for over 215 U.S. corporations. Ennis is a cleared advisor as part of the U.S. Government International Trade Advisory Committee system. Prior to her joining USCBC, Ennis worked as a Kissinger, at Kissinger and McLarry's associate, is assisting in clients uh, on their trades matters and primarily focused on Vietnam and Japan. At the office of the U.S. Trade Representative, representative in 1996 uh, to 1992, Ennis worked in the Congressional Affairs Office on Asian issues and as an assistant to the Deputy Trade Representative Richard Fisher. In 1992 uh, to 1996, Ennis was a legislative aide to then U.S. Senator John Brock, working on international trade and commerce issues. A, na uh, a native of Louisiana, Ennis has a BA in, from Mount Holyoke and a master's degree in international affairs from the Catholic University of America. Please join me in welcoming America Alaska's World Affairs Council's new guest this, this afternoon, Miss Erin Ennis. Thank you. This is actually my, my tryout to be in Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, all right, so thank you so much for coming. Um, I am very pleased to be here. Um, I'm pleased that so many of you are interested in this topic. Um, I would like to cover a lot of territory when we talk today. So what I'm going to do is go through some slides that some of which are very high level just to put some context around how Alaska and the United States interact with China. And then at the very end, it's only one slide, but it kind of gets to the meat of some of what's going on right now. 
And once I get through all of this, I'm happy to, well, frankly, I'd be happy to answer questions at any time. But please feel free, once I've done the overview, to ask me about whatever you care about. Um, the US China Business Council is in a lot of things. I have no qualms about wildly speculating about issues. So I'd be happy to engage in a conversation about what you're interested in, whether it's related to this or that goes beyond it. So to get started, um, this is uh, my public disclosure of my personal bias. So for some context of who the US-China Business Council is, we represent, as we talked about, American companies that do business in China. This is important, I think, to the context of the remarks that I'm going to give to you, because we represent American companies that view China as an incredibly important market to their business. Now, some of them make things in the United States and ship it to China. Some of them make things in China and ship it to the United States, or around the world, for that matter. But the vast majority of our members are doing business in China to access customers in China. And as a consequence, we have a predisposition to wanting to see that trading relationship go as smoothly and as fairly as possible for American companies. So with that as a context, let me tell you a little bit about what trade with China looks like. So the United States is, uh, China is the United States' third largest trading partner. And for Alaska, depending on whether you're looking at goods or services, it's the largest market for Alaska's goods and the third largest market for services. So for those of you who don't spend a lot of time looking at trade data, let me tell you what the difference is. Goods are roughly any a physical product that you might put on a boat or an airplane and ship it over to China, um, or ship it back to the United States for that matter. Services are pretty much all those non-tangible things. So tourism is a US services export when, when a Chinese tourist comes to the United States. When Chinese students come to the United States, that actually is an export of educational services to China. More that likely than not for US-China Business Council members, those services are things like banking, insurance, direct selling, express delivery, all of those legal services also fall in that category. So it's a pretty significant market. This is what it looks like just on good side for the United States. So we, in 2017, so the last full year of data, shipped about $127 billion worth of goods to China. When you look at that growth over that 10-year window, the growth in exports to China was about 86%. Exports from the United States to every other market in the world were at about 16%. So it is a significant market, and it's outpacing every other country in the world as a market for US goods. For Alaska specifically, this is both the goods and the services breakdown. You sold about $1.3 billion worth of goods to Alaska in 2017. That's up 81% over that 10-year window. In services, services data lags by a year. So the data here only goes through 2016. But in that period, you exported about $136 million worth of services. Um, that's up 170%. The largest category is travel and tourism at this point. But there are students that go into that, as well as licensing fees and some of those other services that I mentioned. Second thing to keep in mind is that U.S. trade with China supports 6.9 million American jobs, including jobs in Alaska. So this is a look at, in 2016, how many jobs for the United States were related to trade, with China in particular. Now, I include this because I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that when China came onto the global economy, we lost some jobs, largely in manufacturing. 
China became the cheapest place to do business for some categories of goods in particular. And so we lost probably about 200,000 jobs that can be directly related to things that went on to China. But we also gained a lot more jobs, those services jobs, agriculture, energy. On net, we gained, uh, we now have about 6.9 billion jobs. That's that's 3.6% of all US jobs that have some relation to trade with China. And in Alaska, um, the calculations that we have seen say that there's about 19,000 Alaskans who are doing business in some way related to China. Now, this also means that you need to think a little bit about how trade affects your economy. It's not just that you might be the person who is fishing salmon and shipping it to China, or drilling oil, or um, making that, you know, selling this tourism goods to the Chinese tourist who comes here. There's also those second and third order benefits to your economy. The people at the grocery store who benefit because you now have more income. The people at the auto dealer who are benefiting because you have more income to be able to buy a new car. All of that factors in to how trade with China, and frankly, how trade with the world affects any given economy. But that's also among the reasons why finding the right ways to make that trade work is important to pretty much everyone in an economy. So point three, as you've already figured out, China is a vital market for US goods and services, but it also is affecting the bottom lines of companies here in Alaska. So let me put this in context. 1.4 billion is a lot of people, but one way to think about it, at least from a business perspective, is concentrations of who your customers are in locations where you could get to them. So in China, there are 65 cities that have over a million people. And as you can see, they're fairly widely distributed on the kind of central to east coast of China. In the United States, we have 10. So simply on order of magnitude, China is a significant market for companies around the world because there's a lot of customers, and it's actually fairly easy to get to them if you can get into the market. Why companies are doing business in China, this is the perspective that I mentioned to you about US-China Business Council members. Most of them are there to access the Chinese, uh, the Chinese market itself, although there are clearly those who use it as an export platform to the United States or elsewhere. But another important fact, the vast majority of them are making a profit from their business in China. This is 10 years worth of data for US-China Business Council members. We have never had a year when under 80% of our member companies have told us that their China operations are profitable. That combination, concentration of customers in a location where you can largely easily get to them, the ability to be able to access it, and then ability to make profit on it. That, this is the combination of why companies do business there. Now, that said, there are positive and negative effects of all of that. So this were, these were just a few headlines that I saw as I was um, planning to do these remarks. So you're about to get a new year-round flight to Harbin in China. Have, how many of you have ever been to Harbin before? All right, so a few of you. It's, I think it's a, that's a fascinating and excellent choice because Harbin has its own winter festival. There's going to be a lot of parallels, I suspect, where both Chinese tourists coming here and Alaskans and others wanting to go to Harbin, I think we'll find that's a really interesting new way to build some bridges between the countries. But on the downside, we're in the midst of a trade war. 
And so not only are there companies who are having to reevaluate how they do business in the market, but there are also companies who have products that are being hit either by an import tariff into the United States or by a retaliatory tariff that China has put on US exports to that market. So this is why it affects your business. Big market, you need to be there because it's where the customers are. But when it comes right down to it, there are factors beyond just the economics of whether it's profitable to do business there that could affect your bottom line. So I also don't want to suggest that it is a, an easy place to do business because China is an incredibly challenging market. But what we have found and what the data is showing is that the best ways to address those issues probably aren't tariffs. I'm glad to see you're all laughing. Hopefully that's with me, not at me. And we're about to find out. So, so we do polling of our member companies every year. And among the questions we ask is where companies see signs of protectionism. So in other words, where do companies see that in the market they know that they as a foreign company are being treated differently than a domestic Chinese company that does business in the market? What you'll see here is data from this year's survey of our members. Um, it might be a little small for all of you, but I will be providing my slides so you can follow up on this later and enjoy it. But in general, this covers almost every area that you could do, uh, that you could be affected by business. Um, licensing and regulatory approvals, so that's everything from can you open a business in the market to can you expand your business. China's government requires you to get approvals for all of those things. And in each one of those spots, there's an opportunity for the government to make a choice of not basing its decision on what the economics or your business application looks like, but potentially favoring a domestic uh, competitor over a foreign company. But it also includes things like standard setting. Do they use unique standards that only products that are made by a Chinese company in China would meet? Um, do they uh, have uh, a system of coming by to check on your compliance with environmental regulations more frequently than the Chinese competitor that you have? Each of these combine in to say that almost every company that does business in China says they face some sort of discrimination. And in fact, among our members, only 10% report that they have not seen at least one of these types of discrimination. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is what you should know about U.S.-China trade tensions and why it matters for Alaska. We continue with Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council, Aaron Ennis. Intellectual property rights is a good example, though, of an area where, while things remain a challenge, we have seen slow but steady improvement. So this is a shot of how companies tell us they are seeing Chinese intellectual property rights protection. So for the students in the room, intellectual property is um, whatever it is that makes your product unique and that you get the profit from. So on an iPhone, it's an Apple product, and all of the technology and know-how that goes into not just making the iPhone itself work, but the components that are in that phone that make the iPhone work, all of that is the fruit of someone's brain. You can get compensated for that, but there's also an obligation on governments to protect that. China has had a mixed record on that um, in many years. 
But in general, companies report that things are getting better. Not only that enforcement is better, and there's a better understanding of what intellectual property rights are, but also that the courts are getting better in enforcing a company's rights when they find a violation. It could go a lot faster, it could be a lot better, but in general, things companies say are getting slowly better. But when we get to the challenges that we have right now, we also have the vast majority of companies saying that US-China trade tensions have already started affecting how their companies do business in the market. Um, our survey in 2018 was taken in June of this year. That was right around the time that the first set of tariffs were put on imports from China related to a case dealing with those intellectual property rights issues that I mentioned in the previous slide. So even at that point, companies were telling us that they were already starting to see that they were getting some differential treatment as an American company in the market. The ways that they are seeing that, though, have an interesting overlap in some categories to that slide that I showed you about how companies see protectionism in the market. The top category where companies said that they were seeing um, signs of the US-China trade tensions affecting their business had to do with their regulators coming to visit them more, so those licensing and regulatory approvals. The reason why that's important is that right now, where we stand in US-China relations, it's sometimes very difficult to determine whether the problems that you're experiencing in the market are because you're an American company in the midst of a difficult relationship between the United States and China, or you're a foreign company doing business in a market that has a reputation of not treating foreign companies fairly. We're still fairly early. And much of what we see from these anecdotes is that we might be seeing a trend, but we might also simply be seeing a reflection of a very difficult business environment. The aspects that companies report, though, that are very clearly distinguishable are things that affect their supply chains. Companies losing sales because their products are now more expensive thanks to a retaliatory tariff that China has put on their product. Um, the uncertainty that has been created about how long US-China trade tensions will go on and whether there will be any um, ramifications for doing business with an American company versus finding a supply chain that might not have a similar level of uncertainty, potentially from a Chinese uh, vendor on that product, but also potentially from a European or a Japanese company. That uncertainty is beginning to affect companies. And the longer the trade tensions go on, the longer and more specific companies will be able to determine whether the problems they are experiencing are simply because of a challenging business market or problems because of US-China trade tensions. So the job impact of tariffs in particular is an important one to keep in mind. This is some analysis that was done earlier this year as the United States was just beginning the, how it was going to consider how it was going to put tariffs on products. And so this was an estimate that was done with the idea of putting a 25% tariff on US and Chinese exports, so you know, China retaliating um, against a US action, on $150 billion worth of goods. And in that analysis, there were four jobs lost for everyone gained. The, the gains tended to be in the industries where a, the US had put a tariff on the import, 
like aluminum and steel, for instance. Um, and the losses tended to be in the industries that were more heavily dependent, either upon inputs that were getting a tariff on it or on an export to China. Um, manufacturing employment would not be increasing across the board, though. Steel and aluminum might benefit, but auto manufacturers who have to deal with a higher cost of aluminum or steel for the parts that they have don't fare as well. Um, across the country, the estimate is that about 134,000 workers will lose their jobs, largely in those low-end jobs. The estimate for Alaska is that it will be approximately a loss of 355 jobs per year while this scenario is in place. Now keep in mind, this is the impact of a 25% tariff on $150 billion worth of goods. We currently have between 10 and 25% tariffs on imports from China on $267 billion worth of goods. So these numbers assume a scenario that we have already surpassed. So finally, to give you the one slide that has all of the update on where we are, we don't really know where things are going with this, but this is where things currently stand. Um, and I should, I'm gonna make a joke that the students won't get, but hopefully the adults in the room will. I, have a, I gave a speech recently to a group to try to explain kind of where things were, and I called it my Admiral James Stockdale speech, the where are we, how did we get here, where are we going, <laughs> what can we do? Look up James Stockdale, you'll understand the joke later. Um, so where things currently stand. So as I mentioned, we have $267 billion worth of tariffs on Chinese imports at this point. This is a combination of $250 billion worth of tariffs on goods. So um, inputs, uh, some consumer goods, those kinds of things, plus another $17 billion on aluminum and steel. Of that 267, 200 billion of it has a 10% tariff on it right now, largely consumer goods. So um, the, all of the things that you buy at Walmart that might have a Made in China sticker on it, those largely are probably having a 10% tariff on it at this point. But those tariffs are scheduled to go up to 25% on January 1st, unless things change. China, in retaliation, has put tariffs on $127 billion worth of U.S. exports. Those range from 5 to 25%. The reason for the disparity has to do with the fact that we don't ship as much goods to China as China ships to us. But what Chinese have done to justify this number is to say that, that the tariff on $127 billion is roughly equal to about 85% of U.S. exports to China, which is what they estimate the $267 billion is worth. There is a threat of an additional set of tariffs um, that would cover either all remaining Chinese imports into the United States, that's roughly an additional $267 billion worth of goods. There's also a possibility that, that the increased tariffs, if that came through, might simply double some of the tariffs on products that have already been covered. The only products right now not facing these tariffs are roughly in three categories, apparel, footwear, um, and uh, sporting goods and toys. Um, cell phones also fall in there for the moment. But to get to 267 billion, you probably have to cover at least some of those. So that is looming on the horizon. But there are discussions underway. So in roughly two weeks, President Trump and President Xi Jinping are scheduled to meet at a meeting in Argentina and there is discussion underway about potentially trying to address some of the concerns and come up with a pathway forward on the tariffs. There is no clarity on 
whether trade will be on the agenda, how it will be on the agenda, or whether there's even any areas of compromise or agreement that the two governments could come up with that could lead to addressing the tariffs. But that's certainly what we're pushing them to do, because this starts getting you into an area of increased uncertainty in all of those areas about how American companies in particular do business with China. Right now, we are telling our member companies that they should be looking at that December 1st meeting as the opportunity to try to make an assessment about how long tariffs might last and whether we have a path forward. But we also counsel companies that they should, until something changes, assume that those 10% tariffs on consumer goods are going to go up to 25% on January 1st. It is something none of us want to see, but it is also probably the most prudent way as you are dealing with companies to ensure that they understand that the threat, the threat of this is very high and there is no path forward, at least for the moment. On that happy note, <laughs> let me stop and answer any questions that you might have. Yes, sir. They insist that U.S. companies to do business in China have to enter in joint ventures and they have to transfer intellectual property and so how to their Chinese partners, which long run, you know, sets the stage for the Chinese to just, you know, do it themselves. Um, number one is, uh, how successful are existing World Trade Organization remedies for addressing that problem? And secondly, there's been a lot of criticism of the Trump policy saying that we should be working in partnership with all of our other trading partners who suffer the same issues with China and how, how would you, you know, scope out what that would look like? How, how we would proceed to do that? Would we do it within WTO or outside of it? Those are great questions. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do a little deeper dive on this. So this is, I think, one of the, what I would characterize as the conventional wisdom about what it takes to do business in China that, um, that isn't entirely reflective of what every company's experience is. So when China joined the World Trade Organization, it agreed to um, what the terms were of how foreign companies could enter the market. In general, in manufacturing, so if you made um, widgets or you made cars or whatever, the vast majority of the sectors were open to 100% foreign ownership. Um, it's, it's a term in China called wholly foreign-owned enterprise, WFOE, which we in the industry lovingly call woofies. And most companies can do business as a woofie, as a, as a wholly foreign-owned company. There are notable exceptions. Um, you can't, uh, currently, you can only have a joint venture if you are auto, if you're manufacturing passenger automobiles. There's a few manufacturing sectors, but largely manufacturing is open. Services, so for law firms, for banking, insurance, accounting, most of these areas, there are still restrictions on how much you can own it. China has been steadily reducing or removing those joint venture caps, and so we're actually now on track to have even fewer sectors where companies are, in, as, a, as a, the price of doing business, forced to have a Chinese partner. So that's part number one. Most companies probably can enter the market owning everything that they have in the market. And so that, that the companies that are in the sectors that are restricted, it's a real problem that needs to be addressed. But um, it's also one that the Chinese are very slowly moving towards the recognition that their economy would be stronger by having more competition, not less, in the market. 
the issue of technology transfer, though, is related to this issue of ownership. Because if you can own 100% of what you do in the market, then you could transfer your technology into China without much of a consequence. It'd be like taking it from your right hand and moving it to your left hand. You would still own everything. You would still be able to put in place the highest levels of protection for it. And that technology transfer likely would be done because of an incentive. To, you know, you'll get a lower land cost or lower tax rates uh, as China tries to move up the value-added chain. There are instances where companies in a joint venture face requests from their private Chinese partner to transfer the technology. And as long as you have to be dependent upon a Chinese partner, you have to make the best guess that you can about what those terms look like. It's a private company. Are they asking this because they're simply trying to get a better deal from me? Or is this something that I can say no to and we'll still move forward on it? If you answer that question as a, I don't think that they're serious on this and move forward, you wouldn't have to do anything at all. It simply was a, a negotiating tactic. If you feel like you do have to transfer your technology, but you then have to start asking some other questions. Do I control the technology when it gets to China? So I'm in a 50-50 joint venture, but what if I could negotiate the deal so that my half of the joint venture owns the IP? That might be all right for your company. If you can't get that, can you be properly compensated for it? So can you get what the market value is of that intellectual property that you're trading? When you look at that data, and we ask our companies about it every year, what you see is that most companies don't face an outright request to transfer their technology. And those that do largely can, through that series of mitigation, avoidance, because they've just said, no, I'm not going to transfer it, ownership of the technology and their part of the JV, or proper compensation, most can get what they need out of that. But there are definitely some companies that don't. And you can add into that that complicated regulatory structure where there might be some backhanded ways where China requires the transfer of your technology. So for instance, let's say you wanted to set up a cloud computing system in China. There are no explicit requirements that you have to have a Chinese partner. But there's three separate licenses that you have to have, and two of them require your company to go through a national security review that no foreign company is ever known to have passed. So in this scenario, are you required to share your technology with the Chinese company? You know, you could try it. You could try not to do it and see if you could pass the national security review. But more likely than not, what you're going to determine is we probably have to have a joint venture partner to be able to, to enter the market in that. These issues and how they get resolved and where they occur get to the heart of your second question of kind of whether the WTO is able to deal with these things and what we should be doing with our trading partners. This is an area where world trade rules in general are pretty vague. At least part of that is because when the WTO was created through the Uruguay round in the late 1990s, a lot of these issues didn't even exist. If there is anyone in this room who could have predicted cloud computing in 1992, I would love to meet you and talk to you about how you saw that coming. But the, we are in general are dealing with the types of issues that no one had anticipated, and as a consequence, we are trying to use a system at the WTO that has some general tools about what fairness looks like in a market. But we're also trying to deal with rules that govern governments 
and potentially try to regulate how private companies deal with it. The, the WTO does not regulate what you as an individual company do. So there is nothing in WTO rules that tells you as a private company that you have a right to say no to a business partner who wants you to share your technology with them. There probably are some areas where the WTO can be improved on this. There probably are also some areas where we just need to recognize that the rules as they stand mean something in a way that addresses what these issues are. This is a question that no one has an answer to. The question that, at least for right now, the question that we do have an answer to is how we work with our trading partners on this. You are absolutely right. It is for the vast majority of the issues that I mentioned and that, um, that come up in the trading relationship, it's largely not just American companies that are dealing with it. It's Japanese and European and Korean and Australian companies. And as a consequence, there is some value in working with our trading partners because they're all having the same problems. And that not only gives you greater leverage when you're talking to the Chinese government, but it also makes it harder to retaliate against just American companies because if every government is acting in a way, China would have to retaliate against every foreign company that's doing business in the market. That's a lot more challenging than being able to pick off an American company because they um, have fewer opportunities and other companies are willing to pick up the slack. What that looks like and how you negotiate with them is in the process of being defined. The European Union and Japan and the US are talking through what some WTO reforms might look like. The Canadians recently convened a meeting of all WTO members other than the United States and China to talk about how to address some of these problems. My suspicion is that there, there are some opportunities here, both for collaboration to show that multilateral push to address where the deficiencies are in how we deal with some of the very unique challenges that no one anticipated, um, both from China's entry into the global market and the, the modern economy, but also some opportunities to figure out how we can work together as governments to push on WTO reform as well. This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is What You Should Know About U.S.-China Trade Tensions and Why It Matters for Alaska, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. The speaker is Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. We continue with questions from the audience. Hi, um, I had a question about your membership. You know, have broad coalition of companies, Dell and IBM. Um, I don't see companies like Google and Facebook on there. I know. Facebook is. Oh, OK. Well, I didn't see them on there at first glance. So wondering about their specific challenges, I guess, and how they're working through um, working in a company where they're required to limit their content and um, how you're dealing with that. Yeah, I say this. Um and recognizing that this is being recorded and be played later, and I don't want any of our friends at Facebook to, um, to take offense at it. The interesting thing about Facebook being a member of the US-China Business Council is that you can't actually access Facebook in China at this point. But um, it actually is a reflection of the variety of reasons why companies are part of trade associations. Facebook is very interested in getting into the market. And so they primarily um, come to us to look for understanding about how the regulatory environment is, is evolving, the advocates that we do on trying to address what the problems are in the market, those kinds of things. Um, for technology companies, uh, they definitely do have a, a very significant challenge in the market when they are um, internet slash kind of email platform based. 
those issues are ones where um, you have to navigate in the regulatory environment of any market that you do business in. It's not, it's not uh, acceptable for any company to go into a market around the world and say we're not going to comply with the law. That not only puts you at risk uh, in a market, but it also means that you're probably not going to have a business license for very long while you're doing business there. That means that you do need to make a determination about how you enter the market. Google has not currently a member. They were a member, and then they um, decided not to offer their search platform in China any longer and um, dropped their membership. They are looking at other ways to get into the market, so they may rejoin us at certain point. Um, that is a, a sector where every company makes a different decision. What I can tell you is that China is heavily uh, heavily online. For those of you um, who have or have not been there for that matter, everybody has got a cell phone by and large. They are doing almost everything on mobile platforms. You can use your cell phone and an application called WeChat to pay for taxi cabs, to buy your groceries. They are much, in many ways, they are much more online than the U.S. economy is. And it is viewed as really the testing ground for where modern e-commerce might be going. They actually refer to it as m-commerce in, in, in China for these kinds of things. So that in itself means that you have to balance out the what are the restrictions versus the opportunities in it. For, for hardware and software companies, the challenge is actually a little bit different. It's not really so much an issue of what compromises you might have to make in the market, but whether you as an American company are viewed as a reliable supplier or not. Uh, several years ago, again, potentially getting outside of the zone of some of the uh, folks in the audience today, uh, when Edward Snowden released a great deal of information about what the U.S. government was doing online and accessing other, uh, accessing other networks around the world, China was both trying to develop its own technology industry, but it also was pretty concerned about the fact that it was being targeted and its citizens' data was being targeted, and so began a push to try to use more domestic technology. Now, from a pure technology standpoint, the nationality of the company that provides the technology should not matter because you're putting it into a network and the security that you put in place in every place on that is what determines whether that product is reliable, whether it protects the consumer data or not. Um, but certainly, uh, China, both out of some legitimate concern about how its citizens' data might be used in the United States or by the U.S. government, and some desire to develop its own industry has chosen a path where it's trying to move towards more self-sufficiency of technology. So the challenges that those kinds of companies face have to do with those, what in WTO terms are called national treatment, so equal treatment of domestic and foreign companies, versus uh, whether it is something where the market is simply evolving in a manner where they need to assume that they will be replaced by a Chinese competitor at some point. I feel like I'm giving you all more than you ever wanted to know about these issues. So we're in, in the midst of this trade war. What do you see as the best, best case scenario for a resolution and what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is an easy one to answer and that is that not only does the 10% tariff on that $200 billion worth of consumer goods go to 25% on January 1st, but the U.S. releases a list that covers every other import from China and puts a 25% tariff on that. I think that is that not only puts us in a path that it makes it even more difficult to see what the path of resolution looks like, but it also means that we start seeing the effects on the U.S. economy pretty rapidly. Uh, m most economists at this point are predicting that at some point in 2019, 
we will probably be in the beginning of a recession in the U.S. economy. So if you were to increase consumer prices across the board by 25%, you're probably moving up the date of when, when those recessionary effects start being seen in the market. Um, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think that um, the best case scenario is that over the next 14 days, the two governments are able to speak about the substance of how to address those intellectual property rights and technology transfer issues that are at the core of at least $250 billion worth of all of those tariffs at this point. And even if they don't immediately eliminate some of the tariffs, they agree not to move up the tariff to 25% on January 1st, and they lay out a path that includes substantive progress on the issues, which are real issues that companies need to see addressed, uh, and a timeline of when the tariffs would come off with some benchmarks of this has to be done for the tariff, the $200 billion to come off, and this needs to be done for a certain other percentage of the products to come off. Clarity and specificity would be the ideal outcome on it on substance. I would say that middle ground and where the business community would be concerned is that we have all these tariffs put in place and an agreement comes out that doesn't actually get at the substantive issues. We pretty regularly hear from companies that while they don't appreciate, um, they don't agree with the tariffs that have been put into place, if the ultimate outcome is a better business environment for foreign companies in China, then the pain will have been worth it. But if you go through all of the tariffs and there's no resolution of the issues, then it feels like it was all for nothing. So there, that, that's, kind of, that's the, both the best and the worst case and the middle case scenario, I guess. Th thanks for being here. Um, Business Insider ran an article in the last week of, about what they called debt trap diplomacy, DEBT, uh, where China funds infrastructure projects that uh, a company can't afford. And is that something that you're familiar with? And, what are the consequences of that, and how do you protect yourself against that? Yeah, so, I, so I think what the Business Insider piece was talking about is a program that China has that's, that's now referred to as the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. Its original name, much like WUFI, was one of the better acronyms that we got to use in the industry. It was called One Belt, One Road, and so we refer to it as OBOR. That was just a lot more fun to talk about. So, so we call it officially BRI at this point. Belt and Road is an initiative that China announced about four years ago, I believe, at this point, to, do, to invest in infrastructure around the world. And as a concept, it's something that certainly industry, but certainly many governments around the world were really pleased with. China was offering to pay for the construction of roads and ports and airports that would facilitate global trade. And the, the, the one belt and the one road all were to essentially mean that you could make more stuff in a region to connect Asia. But the belt and road is actually much broader than that. There's a, I believe it's London has a project that's being um, funded through belt and road, which makes it a really big belt or road. I'm not quite sure which one. But um, the challenge is, as you pointed out, are the terms of the funding of these projects fair? Uh, those of us who have been watching this for a while remember what the 80s looked like for um, low-income countries where they went into a great deal of debt and were never able to get their way out of it. And certainly there's the risk of that with some of these projects. 
some countries do seem to have gone into deals where the terms aren't great. And by terms, I mean not only what the lending rates are, so is the, is the interest that you have to pay something that is overly ambitious for whatever the increased trade you might get from having an improved um, infrastructure. But there's also the issue of the fact that some, uh, in order to make some of these projects work, China also is planning, uh, in some cases, to bring in Chinese labor to do the job. So some countries are facing circumstances where they might get a free road, but there's no jobs that are being created that go along with it. Not every project is that way, and we have seen some instances where these projects, when when sunlight was put onto them about what the terms were and how they were unfair, and the pressure was put on China to recognize that the terms weren't fair, we have seen some modifications that, that seem to include a recognition of the fact that the terms need to be sustainable and ones that won't make those countries uh, ultimately dependent upon terms with China they either can't repay or that they're overly dependent on China going forward on it. This, though, is classic soft power diplomacy. I mean, the United States has been building roads and um, building these kinds of kind of proverbial bridges in addition to other bridges around the world for many years. And so it's, it's difficult to argue against the need for infrastructure. There's plenty of countries around the world that will tell you that they really could care less where the money comes from if they could have a high quality port to be able to import and export goods from. But that balance of what are the terms and, and the long-term goal of it is something that continues to be a challenge. We right now, as we the United States, um, are not in much of a position to directly challenge it because we have not agreed to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative, although many of our trading partners have. Um, so this actually kind of gets back to the other gentleman's question of areas where we could be working with other countries. Um, it is a lot easier to influence a policy if you are in the room and talking about it rather than outside yelling at the room. Um, I was just wondering, what do you think the um, likelihood that our two governments would be able to negotiate before January? Um, I was just wondering what you thought about that. So there, the two presidents will be meeting on December 1st, so there is at least the opportunity. There is no guarantee of success. Um, back into my wild speculation mode, I'm going to say right now my gut feeling is that there's a 50-50 chance that the meeting in two weeks could have a substantive outcome. Uh, even if they didn't get a deal on December 1st, if they left that meeting with an agreement to keep talking, I think that improves the chance of the tariffs not escalating on January 1st. If they leave that meeting and it doesn't go well, or it's very clear that they aren't even talking about the same potential solutions, or in, in some instances this certainly happens between governments, that you can't even agree on what the problem is, that then means that we have a higher likelihood of, um, of problems starting on January 1st. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is What You Should Know About U.S.-China Trade Tensions and Why It Matters for Alaska, featuring Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. We continue with questions from the audience. As you know, China has a long history of a serious human rights abuse over the decades. Um, we're talking torture, imprisonment, execution. Um, a forcible harvesting of uh, organs from Falun Gong prisoners, and recently one million or more uh, Turkic Muslims have disappeared into internment camps in western China. Um, I've seen, uh, I would say, far too many businesses and other uh, entities uh, 
try to deny this or minimize it or uh, find a way to, to um, co-opt it so that they can uh, get into the Chinese market. So my question is, uh, what are your um, concerns or uh, thoughts about um, the moral implications, the moral issues of uh, doing business with China? Uh, and thanks for being here. Sure, no problem. This is a complicated question for companies because particularly if you're a publicly traded company, you are legally required to do what's in the best interest of your shareholders. China has 1.4 billion people. Uh, it is a market that depending on your sector, you can freely access. So do you as a company make the choice not to enter the market because there is a broader concern that you have over overall human rights? Or do you take advantage of a market opportunity because you're not in an industry that's affected by it? Um, even for smaller companies that don't have to face the legal requirement, companies are in business to make a profit. We, we can hope that they make choices that we agree with, and we as consumers and we as shareholders um, can push companies to make those kinds of choices. But if the market is there, the key is to find the terms of doing business there that enable you to uphold the standards with which you feel it should be handled. The way most companies do that is they hold themselves to the standard in China that they would expect themselves to hold another market. So they don't in employ child labor. Um, they choose not to source from companies where there's a questionable um, connection with prison labor or those kinds of things. And we, we regularly lobby our government to engage in the discussions of human rights issues because that's actually where the voice is uh, to be able to push the right kinds of outcomes on it. But as much as I think we, we can all make choices as consumers, we also need to recognize that the, the deal that companies go into for isn't because they are ignoring human rights, but because China has a human rights issue in the midst of being the largest market and significant opportunity for consumers, and most consumers in that market are ones who are able to freely make choices about where they work, how they work, and frankly, what products they buy. I, I know that that is, um, an unsatisfactory answer in many ways because I think we would like to believe that in a world where governments don't seem to be functioning in the way that we want them to, that maybe companies could solve that problem. But our experience has been that, that those really are issues that go beyond what an individual company can make a choice on and have a meaningful impact over the long term. So really that's the collective action of not just everybody in this room about the choices that you make about how you support companies or um, interact with your government, but that collective action and the, and the collective action of governments is the best way to deal with the, the, the bigger concerns that we have about how human rights are handled, not just in China, but any market around the world. Do you have any data on uh, the overall levels of industrial espionage in China, especially as it's, as it's gone up or down over the last 10 years? Um, it's one thing to not require companies to uh, share intellectual property, but it's, uh, it's another side of that to allow Chinese companies uh, with intellectual property acquired in an unknown way to operate with impunity as uh, Siemens certainly found out when they contracted to build the Shanghai Maglev train. Yeah, there's plenty of instances that we know of where things have come to light about where, um, whether it is uh, espionage or simply theft is occurring. 
there's no good data, I would say, on where that's coming from and, and even less good data, if that's the right way to say that, uh, less accurate data in terms of breaking down where the perpetrator comes from. There's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, if you were talking about theft of intellectual property rights via the internet, you don't have to be in China for that. Someone can hack into your computer from anywhere in the world, and your best ability to be able to figure out who that is is dependent upon um, how many clues the person who has hacked your system has left. You know, there certainly are instances where um, things look like they're coming from China, but it's either coming from Russia or North Korea, or vice versa on all of those kinds of things. In general, if you're going to engage in cyber theft, you're probably trying to cover your tracks. What we hear more from companies is less an amount of of cyber theft and more insider theft. So really what you see are people who work at companies who have access to a great deal of information who take it and either sell it or, or use it to profit themselves from that data. And how much of that happens versus overall theft versus over problems, we can't, we don't have anything that I view as reliable data. Everything takes, uh, in general that I have seen, takes some anecdotal information that might be out there and then tries to extrapolate that into broader trends. I start getting nervous with that kind of data once you get beyond the first calculation of there were 10 companies that had a cyber theft and if you assume that there's 100,000 companies, how many options does that mean of all of them? I mean, that, that's where you start getting into things. So there's no good quantification of it, but how much of it is driven by the Chinese government versus individuals seeking to make a profit, we don't know. Yeah, we have time for one more question. Try to, try to do this really quickly. Uh, could you address uh, two things real quickly? One is uh, the general notion that the president is often tweeted about that it's bad if we have a, a balance of trade disparity with another country. Is that really uh, you know, automatically bad for the US? Uh, the other thing is, would you care in your uh, area of reckless... Uh, My wild speculation? Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, I used the wrong word. Uh, um, what the likelihood is that the countries who complain about uh, the U.S. stealing uh, aluminum tariffs being justified under U.S. law as some kind of a national security issue, uh, are they appealing that to WTO and what's the prospects for the outcome of those things, and what would be the remedy if the U.S. Uh, actions are, you know, declared unlawful? Um, two other really good questions. I think you're a plant. Um, so the trade deficit, any economist that you talk to, number one, will probably bore you with data, but number two, will tell you that the trade deficit is a terrible way to evaluate how the U.S. economy is doing. There are both some statistical reasons for that, but there's even, there's even an easy one for us all to understand. In general, the United States has very high trade deficits when our economy is doing the best, and we have reductions in our trade deficit when our economy is in recession. The reason for that, when our economy is doing a lot better, we all have a lot more money and we spend it. And when we don't have a lot of money, we save it. That gets into the statistical reason why the trade deficit is a terrible way to evaluate the health of the economy, and that's because the one thing that could probably genuinely reduce the U.S. trade deficit, not just with China but with other countries, is if we as Americans spent less and saved more. 
the trade deficit is one part of how GDP is calculated, and it is one that does not determine how GDP overall is. But if we wanted to improve the trade deficit itself, take more money out of the economy and save it, and we would miraculously see the trade deficit going down because we'd be buying less stuff. The other reason why it is not a great way to evaluate the U.S.-China relationship in particular is that the reasons why we don't sell more into China aren't really because of significant problems in China. It's because China doesn't spend more of its um, disposable income. They save a lot. And so even if you took out every tariff, every trade barrier, you probably still would not be able to see a meaningful change in our trade deficit numbers because Americans, by and large, spend a lot more of their disposable income and Chinese, uh, than Chinese citizens who save a lot more of their income. So the president, I know, feels very strongly about this. Some of his advisors equally feel very strongly about it. I don't think there's anyone who would tell you that we shouldn't reduce the trade deficit because we'd all love to see more American goods and services sold around the world. Well, I take that back. I would like to see a reduction in the trade deficit other than going into recession. But you know, seeing that reduction makes perfect sense. But how you get there really is the key. So in terms of the tariffs being based on national security, there are several um, cases filed against the United States at the World Trade Organization that will be looking into this. It is a challenging question. And it's one that most governments up until this point have avoided trying to litigate at the WTO somewhat for fear of what the WTO was going to determine. In general, the issue in the United States we started noticing about this expansive use of national security, perhaps unironically, was because China defined national economic security on the same level as national security. And as a consequence, you get a, you get a waiver at the WTO when you say something's done based on national security. It's, it's the reason why we can have export controls that say you can't sell certain types of dual-use technology to China. It's the reason why you can put restrictions on the industries in which some companies, uh, some countries, uh, company, com companies from some countries can invest in because you can protect off your national security of the country. That, that's beyond trade rules. When you start morphing that into national economic security, you start getting into every government's own definition of what that looks like. So is it in the United States national economic security to want to have a lot more manufacturing jobs in steel? Or is that simply a protectionist policy to try to ensure that American companies have a better price because the, the open market price um, they couldn't compete at? If the flip side was true in China, I know what our answer would be. We, we absolutely do not think that China should be able to define um, national security and national economic security on the same level. The problem when you deal with the World Trade Organization is the rules apply equally to everyone, at least in theory. And so if we don't allow China to define national security and national economic security on the same basis, how can the United States make that, or the European Union, or, or anyone else? This is one of those dilemmas that I don't think there's a good answer to. I can't predict how, well, I, I can actually predict a little bit about how the case is going to come out. The WTO dispute settlement system right now has an insufficient number of judges to rule on any case. So the ruling right now is going to be no ruling because they simply don't have, the court system isn't working right now. But when they get into the, the needy issues that are in there, I think it's, it's going to be anybody's guess about how it comes out. With that, I'd like to have everyone join me in a big round of applause for our speaker, Aaron Ennis. Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans today on KSKA Anchorage. 
We just heard Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council, discuss trade with China and how it affects Alaska. Today's show was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council and was recorded at 49th State Brewing Company on November 16th. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more, head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.